0: Hello, and welcome to The Daily Weekly. I'm Jennifer Meir, and I'm here with Maya Goldman and Colin Beresford. This week, Colin will be discussing what's happening with the Lecturers' Employees Union. Maya will be interviewing the Michigan Daily's Basketball Beat to discuss their coverage of the Michigan men's basketball season, primarily March Madness, which wrapped up this week, Michigan coming in second after losing to Villanova in the championship. And later, I will be speaking with Maya about her statement lead uh, this week on an American accent workshop at the university. Now, here's Colin.
1: Wednesday night, the Lecturer's Employee Organization, also known as LEO, announced its members would strike next Monday and Tuesday if they did not reach a contract agreement with the university between now and then. LEO has been bargaining with the administrators for more equitable pay and benefits since October, and their contract officially expires April 20th. In February, the university finally gave the union an initial response to their contract demands, a response LEO called insulting. Since then, bargaining efforts have ramped up significantly, and many allies have become involved with the cause. The union has gotten official statements of support from several university regents, including Mark Bernstein, who said, quote, I want to declare publicly and proudly solidarity with our lecturers, and also from central student government. University spokesperson Rick Fitzgerald told The Daily last week, quote, the university believes strongly that the collective bargaining process is effective and there is no need for Leo to call for a strike, end quote. And as it turns out, there's a law in Michigan that says public employees, which would include university lecturers, cannot go on strike. But according to the Leo blog, the union feels, quote, compelled to take action after months of administration not making movement towards our proposals, end quote. Unless significant bargaining process is made between now and Monday morning, LEO members and many allies will begin picketing at locations all across the university to draw attention to their cause.
2: Thanks, Colin. So I'm here with Ethan Wolf, Max Markovich, Mike Persak, and Mark Calcogno about who are our basketball beat writers here at The Daily. Um, and we're going to talk about this Uh, basketball season which has been really exciting and eventful for the Michigan team. So you guys have all been covering the team all season not just this month. Um, What do you think have been the team's best moments?
3: Well the obvious go-to one would be the Jordan Poole buzzer beater but I wasn't there for that shot so I had a little bit of a a different perspective and seeing what the reaction was from Max and Mike who were there and then from me streaming it from my apartment where my stream was behind uh, whoever lived above me in my apartment, and they were going wild. And at that moment, when I realized Michigan was inbounding the ball and the people above me were going nuts, I knew that I was about to have to pay for a flight to Los Angeles. <laughs> so it was exciting for for that opportunity to come about. A little bit, uh, a little bit scary that. Things were going to change in the blink of an eye like that, but it was a truly incredible moment and going to rank highly in Michigan lore.
2: Mm-hmm. I'll
4: give the other perspective on the pool shot because that is how this season will be remembered. That's sort of the lasting image, um, and then I'll let Mike and Mark sort of think of other things. um I was actually writing the game story for that game, meaning I um, we have to publish shortly after the buzzer, um, and so it was back and forth game in the second half a lot, and I was. Um, had two different documents open one if they lose and one if they win and sort of just altering the details here and there um and it looked toward the end like they were gonna lose they fouled uh up two um and so like make both free throws and that game's over so I was kind of frantically typing like head down and then I see he missed both free throws and like pool standing right in front of me like about 10-15 feet in front of me I just hear him like scream out Ham, which is their nickname for uh, Muhammad Ali, Abdul Rahman, the guy with the ball. And like he just passes it to him, which was pretty stunning because like Poole doesn't play that much, or he didn't play that much. Um, He's kind of an outgoing personality, but like very inconsistent all year and like um, had a back and forth relationship a a bit with the coach. And he just catches it and like flails his legs, fall down. I thought he got, I thought he got uh, fouled. Um, actually and he didn't and I just watched it go in and like I don't remember really how I reacted but then like five or ten seconds after I was like I need to start frantically typing <laughs> so I just like started going started going and then uh eventually got something out I'm not really sure if it was English but <laughs> um it was a moment I definitely will never forget and I'm sure Mike would would say the same
5: I'll I'll uh, speak to a different moment, but one thing I do want to mention uh, I want to give a shout out to Ethan Sears, uh, who is one of our freshmen, uh, who was sitting right in front of Rob Rob Graves' player on Houston. He was sitting right in front of their family. He and I were. And after Pool hit the shot, uh, he stood up and was had like his hand over his mouth, and um, and ESPN flashed to like show <laughs> Rob Gray's family, and Ethan was just like standing like awkwardly, <laughs> awkwardly in in the in the shot. Great moment, great moment in daily history, more than anything. Um, beyond that, uh, I mean, the whole tournament run, you know, it just kind of escalates from like cool moment to cool moment, you know, where it's like you start in New York and and you're playing in front of this huge Michigan crowd in msg like um just like an awesome scene and obviously they make the run of the big 10 tournament and um you know wichita isn't the greatest arena in the world or anything like that but like a cool moment with the pool shot and all that and then you move on to the staple center um and so i think you know it's hard to pick other than that pool shot like one moment um from those games but they were all just so memorable um because of like the scenes around it and and, and you know how the team was playing um through that stretch run so um, you know, I guess it's not really an answer, but but, but I'll I'll just say the whole tournament run.
6: <laughs> yeah, and in, in my opinion, I think the the two wins over Michigan State were both really big. Um, you know, that was a team that was that was picked to win the national championship by many. Um, and Michigan beat them twice, which I think not a lot of people expected. Uh, beat them the first time in January, and the the second time in the Big Ten tournament. Um, my favorite moment from the season though was actually John Teske's dunk over Isaac Haas. Um just because John Teske is like a quiet guy, um his freshman year it didn't seem like he had like a lot of confidence on the court and then he he goes up uh and posterizes like the the biggest uh tallest player in the big ten and I just thought that was that was so cool to see that growth you know um remembering him last year he he seemed so lost out there and then to see him go up against against isaac costs was was really cool
2: awesome and and you guys sit on the sidelines, but you're communicating a lot with the players, so how would you characterize your relationship with them throughout the season?
5: I uh, There are a lot of times, especially, I mean, you can imagine after they lose to um, uh, Villanova in the championship game, right? Like, they're not exactly trying to talk about it all the time. And um, But it's, so during the season, during the regular season, um, we don't get like an open locker room, like. Um, they choose who comes out and talks to the media. Um, And I think that somewhat limits, like, your communication with them because it's, like, a bigger crowd around each player. It's harder to have, like, more one-on-one communication. But then when they get to the Big Ten tournament and then beyond, it's an open locker room after the game. And so uh, you get to go in and pretty much pick who you want to talk to. You get a lot more face time with people. And I think, um, you know, it varies on the player, but there were a lot of players by the end who would, you know – who you feel confident like actually know you I guess and uh and so you know I I wouldn't say by any stretch of imagination we're like close friends with any players but by the end I think it's nice to like have at least some sort of relationship with them where where they kind of trust you to like not you know ask them dumb questions and, and and uh and yeah so
3: It's interesting. My parents will ask me all the time, do they know you, do they recognize you? when that's really not exactly what we're focusing on, but we do have an interesting perspective where to echo Mike from for earlier in the season or the regular season, we don't get to have the most face time with them and have the most personal connection. But as college students, we know exactly what what they're going through. and sometimes it's a relatable thing to, to talk about even after you, hit stop on the recorder there's there's a, a phase where they kept talking about Fortnite, and <laughs> as college students and I, mean, I i play the game and it's something i can i understand what they're talking about and all the the other reporters who are around are so wide-eyed just ooh, what's that that's gonna be great to talk about but i'm just here to talk about how they're doing in the game <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah and and throughout the season and also especially during this tournament you guys Spend a lot of time on the road with the daily traveling with the team. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to travel for the daily?
4: Yeah, um, it's an experience that you will never forget, um, in the long run and in the short run can be an absolute grind. (laughs) Um, we there are a lot of places that we actually, like a couple places, we chose to drive that we didn't have to. We chose at the beginning of the year to drive to Chapel Hill um because the budget isn't, you know, very comforting for flights so we're driving pretty much everywhere. Um and we chose to go there because uh UNC is like such a, a famous arena um and that's a trip I'll never forget and I would never regret. The ones that really take a toll are like Penn State in the middle of the week when it's like you're not staying over either so it's like you're going, you're riding and then you're just driving back however long it takes. It builds a lot of camaraderie between us, I would say. Um like we know each other's McDonald's orders, like <laughs> like the back of our hand, but <laughs> and two number sixes with a coffee. <laughs> um, but I I also think um, it's a very like college newspaper experience. Something that I- if we or if any of us do journalism professionally, it's not the type of thing um, that we'll be doing all that much and have the experience to do. So so uh, it's an experience that we love to have, but um, in in limited
1: samples. <laughs>
2: Definitely understandable. Okay, let's talk about March Madness. So, Mike, you wrote that you thought Michigan would lose against Houston. What kept Michigan in that game, in your opinion?
5: Uh, first, I, I will defend that take a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, for, well, A, by saying I was almost right. <laughs> um, but but B, by saying um, I did take Michigan a lot farther in my bracket. So um, I was just kind of Nash. being silly, I guess. But what kept them in the game is – um well in my opinion they should have been like further ahead in that game. Um I think they're just like more talented than Houston is. Um but Houston has Rob Gray who's their point guard and he's just a hassle to guard just like a very talented scorer. So I guess what kept them in it um was just like the timely plays that like they probably should have been making all game if that makes sense. Um there was a particular play where they had like a five-point play because which is obviously very rare. Um but there were like flashes of like, oh yeah, that's the Michigan team we've been seeing all year that like should have shown up this whole time. Um and then they obviously the pool shot goes in and, and they move on. But um I think a lot of people were somewhat surprised that it was as close as it was. Um so yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I, I think Hold on. he's
4: speechless because he was he was wrong <laughs> by by several rounds. <laughs> Um, uh, about the close game, though, um, that's sort of the type of game they played all year. They, they were a really good team, um, went a lot further than anyone expected at the beginning of the year, but they were also a team that never really blew that many teams out. They, they, they won with their defense, um, and they won in a lot of close games, and it kind of became their, their mo by the end.
2: Yeah, and why do you think that they couldn't replicate the way that they played against Texas A&M?
6: Yeah, I think that game was just sort of an anomaly. Um, they shot the ball so well. Uh, Duncan Robinson said afterward that that was probably the best they could have played. Um, I know against in, in the next game against Florida State, uh, Florida State's length and athleticism sort of gave them troubles. And then in the final four, it's just a different stage, and they hadn't been shooting well in the entire tournament besides that, that Texas A&M game. Um, I don't think it's anything to do with their offense, maybe just a little bit, some some defensive looks that gave them some trouble. And then it's it's hard to hit as many shots as they did in that Texas A&M game so I, I think it's somewhat understandable how how you know that game was not Like one that they could have played on and on through throughout the tournament
2: Yeah, and speaking of Florida State um, With 11 seconds left in the Florida State game Florida State head coach Leonard Hamilton called for his team not to foul Despite being down by four. So why do you think he made this call?
3: My, I have multiple theories about <laughs> this decision and the first is Possibly indicative of his interview after the game, he simply did not know that he should be fouling, and he simply gave up. Uh, another theory is that he had money on the game, and the line was four and a half, and he had to keep it that way. And uh, another theory, which it would I think is impossible to take all of these factors into consideration. I mean, Duncan Robinson, the team's best free throw shooter, got the ball with around 10 11 seconds left. They foul him, and there's maybe seven or eight left. He likely makes both of them. And then Florida State, a team that hasn't shot well from from three all season, has to get two miracles in a row. And to tie the game only, I I'd say that they just knew to throw in the towel at that point. So those are my possible theories.
4: I think it's less a psychological breakdown of Leonard Hamilton as it is him completely mishandling his timeouts. I think he called his last timeout with, like, over two minutes left, and when you don't have timeouts late in games in college basketball, like, they're still college basketball players who are, like, our age, um, and they forget a lot of things, so, so, like, they had missed a shot on that possession, and they're looking up, and it's, like, 10 seconds, and, like, they may, might, maybe don't know to foul because they haven't had a huddle with the coach in, like, several minutes. Um, that's my working theory. Yeah. Um, but we we, we may may never know.
2: Yeah, Yeah, well, those all seem like good theories. Um, Let's talk about the atmosphere inside the Alamo Dome. What was it like during the Final Four game against Loyola?
4: I think it's just stunning when you walk in to see that many people watching a college basketball game. Uh, Chrysler holds, I'm going to get this wrong, but 9,000? No, it's more than that yeah okay whatever Chrysler holds like (laughs) 13,000 and they to be quite honest don't fill it um and but when you go what it's it's a fact um but when you walk in that stadium it's it's yeah when you walk in that stadium it's it's 70,000 or so people and it's packed um and so like there are people in like the far corner in the top you know in the top row of the top deck and they're like they're there and it's like stunning just like when you walk in to see that many people for for you know you see it for football but not necessarily for basketball and what did it feel
2: like uh during the championship game when we were losing <laughs> what did it feel like during the championship game when Michigan was losing to Villanova
5: um I think I could speak for all of us and saying like so so Michigan started out right they get the 21-14 lead and and um, I didn't expect Michigan to win that game I just thought like Villanova was a lot better heading into it um, and then you know Michigan gets out to that lead and it's like oh you know and you know, maybe they're maybe this is another game like Texas A&M where they just like play out of their minds and like they, they beat Villanova um, but as soon as Villanova started turning it on and like Dante DiVincenzo started hitting all those shots it was like and, and Villanova kind of looked this way against every team they played but it was like man they are just so much better than Michigan (laughs) like something is going to have to like change drastically um for for like Michigan to pull this out and then um I mean it was just like no answer the whole game like they, they didn't have the firepower to beat Villanova from anywhere um and, and, you know, Fogner kind of got taken out of the game from by, by Spellman, uh, seemed like mentally, and, and he wasn't able to, like, produce how he did against Loyola. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it just it just was, like, so overwhelming for Villanova to just, like, dominate Michigan pretty much the whole game. To add
4: on to that, I think that there were just a, mil- a million different ways that Villanova could win. So, like, they won the game before by making however many threes they made. They won a tournament record. I think they made a tournament record for threes but – and they won, like, with their – their their point guard was player of the year. He didn't even play that well in the national championship game, and they still won handily because they could win in, like, five different ways, and Michigan kind of needed to play the Texas A&M game in order to have a chance, um, and they went three for 23 from three instead. Um, So I I think if they played 20 times, Michigan might win 18 or 19. (laughs) I mean, Michigan might win one or two, and Villanova might win 18 or 19.
6: Yeah, just to add on about uh, Villanova's point guard, I mean, he's the national player of the year, and you could probably make the argument that he might not even be the best player on that team, truly. Um, So yeah, I mean, Villanova just had so much firepower, and to have a guy like DiVincenzo come off the bench and score 31 points, you know, I I don't really know how Michigan would have won that game.
2: And the season is over, um, but some of you guys are writing next year, some of you guys won't be, but as journalists, as sports journalists, what are you looking forward to most for the next season?
6: I think, first off, um, Mo Wagner's decision. Uh, last year, he, he um, entered into the NBA draft and then pulled out uh, once he got some feedback on his, on his defense and rebounding. It seems like he'll go pro this year, um, enter the draft. Uh, but as far as next year, they have one of their best recruiting classes in a while. That should be really exciting. Um, and then just to see the the growth of some of the players this year, um, Jordan Poole, Isaiah livers, Xavier Simpson to take a next step. Ibi- Ibi- yes. Ibby Watson, <laughs> um, big John Teske, um, <laughs> Brent Hibbits, Luke Wilson, CJ Baird. We'll see if CJ Baird can hit another three in March Madness next year. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, they they should still be a good team next year. Um, and some, in some early preseason polls or, or way too early, whatever preseason polls are, they're ranked about 21st, but you know, if, if the last couple of years are any indication, um, it seems like Beeline is able to, to, you know, figure it out by the end of the season. Um, so I'm excited to see if he, he can do that again next year.
5: Personally, I, uh, you know, when we're making this run, uh, as journalists, uh, we watch from, from, from the, uh. From the game, right, uh, personally, uh, if Michigan could make as deep a run and we could experience the riots, <laughs> that'd, that'd be great. Because, I mean, the underrated part is, as journalists, we don't get to riot, you know? Uh, <laughs> we, we're at the game. There are no riots at the games. And, like, I'd like to speak for all. Like, riots are cool. I'm about riots. <laughs> I would like to riot.
2: <laughs> well, thank you so much, guys, for stopping by. <laughs> um, hopefully... Uh, next year's season will fare a little better. <laughs> yeah,
5: thank you.
1: Try the world's best flavors with none of the jet lag. Noodles & Company brings you cooked-to-order pastas, noodles, and salads without any of that pesky traveling. No TSA, no luggage, just favorites like barbecue pork mac with slow-braised pork, crispy jalapenos, and tangy barbecue sauce. Or truffle mac with black truffles, mushrooms, and toasted breadcrumbs. Or travel the map to the Mediterranean for pesto cavatappi with creamy basil pesto, fresh tomato, and mushrooms. The excursion continues with our Penny Rosa's highly craveable spicy tomato cream sauce. Will one visit to your nearest noodles and company make you a world traveler? That really depends on how many dishes you order. Visit noodles.com to order online or to find a location near you.
0: Thanks, Colin. I'm here with Maya, who wrote this week's statement lead about an American accent workshop at the university led by speech pathologist Gordon Cranin. So Maya, can you tell us a little about Cranin and what exactly the workshop is?
2: Sure, Jen. It's fun to be on this side of the interview. <laughs> um, so the the workshop is an American accent modification workshop. So people are coming to Cranin, Gordon Cranin, who's a trained speech pathologist, and they are, uh, they're coming because they want to improve their accent these people are mostly from these people are from foreign countries um who moved to america to work at the university go to school do other jobs in the community and uh, they feel for whatever reason that they're you know not um, being as understood by their colleagues as they would like to or they feel not they don't feel confident speaking up um and so they they come to this workshop and Uh, Cranin essentially teaches them how to speak American English, which is a really, really interesting concept, uh, in my opinion.
0: Absolutely, and we learned through the article that there's lots of different uh, facets of this. The students come from, or not Not students, participants, right? That's how um, Cranin prefers them. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and and they come for a variety of reasons. Um, So I know in the article you mentioned that sometimes the program or the way it's marketed perhaps receives criticism. Uh, Can you talk a little about that and why that might be?
2: Yeah, uh, I didn't actually, the details were pretty fuzzy when I was talking to people. I'm not sure if it was because they, you know, just didn't really want to talk about it or if it was really a pretty minor issue. It kind of seemed like it might have just been a Facebook comment on their Facebook page. But um, essentially they said that the workshop came under fire a little bit for being potentially insensitive. Why would they want to change people's accents? Um, Why are accents bad, people were saying? But really what they what Cranin and the University Center for Language and literacy which is where this uh, workshop is housed um, they they are really offering a service for people that want the service they're not trying to change anything about anyone and they also are very clear that they're not changing they're modifying um, it's a service for people who feel like they want to build confidence in their English skills and in their communication skills and they're not, uh, the workshop makes it very clear that they're not trying to get rid of anyone's accent.
0: They value everyone's accents. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that definitely came through in the article. Um, could you talk real quick about what surprised you the most and, uh, if you, what what you learned from writing this piece?
2: Yeah, I think the most surprising thing, which maybe I should have, um, in hindsight, maybe I should have anticipated was how much practice it takes to alter your accent. Um, in the article, I quote Cranin as saying that he he suggests people practice 15 to 20 minutes a day outside of the class just speaking English, you know, not with a purpose, but just saying words. Um, and to me, that seems like so it takes so much dedication, and it definitely does. These participants were all extremely dedicated, bright individuals who, you know, were working really hard to, to make this change for themselves so that they could, you know, building confidence in this foreign country, you know, where they're already out of their comfort zone.
0: For sure, and uh, for the full story, you can check it out at themichigandaily.com. Thanks so much, Maya. Mm -hmm. This week in news, The Daily covered students' disappointment that a watered-down race and ethnicity course requirement does not live up to expectations. Also in academic news, last month, LSA Dean Andrew Martin sent out an email to LSA department chairs, informing them that the LSA executive committee will halt the production of new LSA miners. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Daily Weekly. This episode was produced by Ryan Cox and Avery Friedman.